Many of you have heard what I'm going to start with today multiple times over in different variations. It's my testimony. It's my story of transformation. But I'm going to tell it again today, and to be honest, we could start this, all of us who know Christ, anytime we are talking about any passage with our testimony. It's what God has done in our lives. But in 1977, three major events transformed my life. The first one is not as important as what's in my testimony, but it's a pretty big deal for the world. Star Wars was released to theaters, and the movie industry in my life was forever changed by the wild story from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And if you ever stop by my office, there's Star Wars littered throughout the books and various other things that cram into my, I think it's 15 by 18 space where I work. And that is me standing with Boba Fett, and that's my daughter, who hates that there's a picture up on the screen right now. Love you, honey. <laughs> and yes, I owe you something. Second, and more importantly, my dad transitioned from being the mad scientist working for the Los Angeles Sanatorium. I loved that when I found that out this week and became the madman in charge of a gang of teenagers at the edge of L.A. County, which both of those sound much worse than what he was doing because they are more commonly known as being a research scientist for the City of Hope. You might recognize that name. There's a fun picture on the screen. I'll get to that in a minute. And then he became the youth intern and then a youth pastor at two of our sister churches down in the area. The first was in Whittier, Used to be Wabif, Whittier Area Baptist Fellowship, and now it's WAC, which is something I get a kick out of, Whittier Area Community Church, but WAC is a 90s term for lame. It's not a lame church, but I enjoy that. If I was ever tempted away from grace, just getting to say that I was the, the WAC youth pastor might be something that I'd be enticed by. I have a sick and twisted sense of humor that way. And then he became the youth pastor at a church that no longer exists. That's its own cool story as well. But it was Bethel Baptist Church. Both of those were BGC at the time. We're now called Converge. But he worked at the City of Hope. I went on their timeline. This is a picture from there. That man with the wonderful mustache. It's even better up close. I asked, I sent it to him and I said, do you know any of these people? It's from 1978. He left in 77 or right around there. But 77 is what I remember, which is not much, because I was very young. But he said he worked with him. I can't remember his name right now, and I didn't put it in my notes. But he worked with him. It's been a while, so he might have worked with the other three people. But he also said this, the guy with the mustache. Not only did they get to play lots of volleyball together. Little quirk for those of you that were not around the church circles in 1970s. They played a lot of volleyball. A lot of volleyball. They had competitions, and they had trophies, and churches would keep the trophies in the hallways. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And others of you are trying to fathom what that would look like. Sadly, as the church is full of, 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 of struggling Christians sometimes, um, they weren't always pleasant games of volleyball. They would get heated from time to time. Not with my dad, and, and I, I don't think with this, this man either. But they would play volleyball together. And he was a Christian. So my dad was working in the labs. He was a Christian. The man with the mustache, also a Christian. I don't know the stories of the other men, but I geeked out over that. I found it out right before youth group on Tuesday night. So I 
inundated them with details and part of the story on Tuesday night because those things excite me. Another little side dish on that. My family loves science. In our family, you're either a teacher, if you're one of the ladies, you're kind of a teacher. Some break out from that, but my mom, my sister, my wife, all teachers. The men become pastors, but that's not what we usually start out with. Me, my dad, my brother-in-law, all pastors. Um, It's not a family business. You don't hand it down that way. It's just been interesting. But before being pastors, my dad was a scientist, a research scientist. Up until my senior year of high school, I was interested in science. And my son, oldest son, Nathan, some of you might remember him, and a picture might pop up on the screen. He's down in Fullerton right now. That's his selfie shirt, if you can read it. It's a science pun. He's studying, and you can be praying for him. He's studying at, at Fullerton College for a lab tech or assistant lab tech certification. And Nathan's wonderful meandering story is always a complicated one for those of you who know him. He's on the autism spectrum. So be praying for him. He has finals coming up and is doing well and also struggling. So be praying for him. I would appreciate that. That was the second thing. First, Star Wars. Second, my dad became a pastor. And I became a PK, by the way. I've been a PK almost all my life. And then a dad of PKs among many other things. And third and most important of all of that was in that year where I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I grew up attending church from the first Sunday I was born. My parents went, took me to church. I don't remember that day at all, but they tell me I was there. And I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home and at a church as I grew in my faith. Later on in junior high, while they had an altar call for those who didn't know Christ, and I did, and they sent the rest of us out uh, to pray in, in solitude and quietness around the camp at Meadow Ranch at Hume Lake, I was on the grass just outside their Cedar Hall Chapel. It's now the smaller one at junior high. It was the main one at junior high camp then. And I was praying in the dark and under the stars and was convicted to own my faith and even more to own faithful conduct as part of my faith to live it out, and to not accept hypocrisy in my life. And of course, I've struggled with that at different times, as all of us do, to live holy, but have also held to, I need to live holy, trying to live out and grow in my sanctification. And then before my senior year of high school, the switch from being interested in science, I still love science, by the way, I did a crazy thing, especially for me, those of you who are extroverts, this doesn't seem all that crazy, but to anybody who's an introvert, to anybody who's shy, to anybody who's the quiet one in the room, or as a teacher called me one time, the wallflower, my senior year just before, we were on a youth choir trip for Grace San Luis Obispo. My dad was the youth pastor up there and had been for all of my junior high and high school years. So I went to him and I asked him if I could do a short devotional as part of our performance that night. It was a youth-only event. Usually we were before the whole church, so we were doing a little bit of extra stuff. And a friend of mine and I were doing a hip-hop routine to a DC Talk song to take some of you back to that day, if you happen to live through it. And yes, I can or at least could dance, and no, I'm not going to prove it. That was not a surprise to my youth group, but when 
my dance partner stepped off, the one I was doing the routine with, the stage, and I stayed up there to give a 10 to 15 minute devotional, the first one of my life, at least that I remember, or at least apart from some VBS curriculum with some younger kids, I spoke to a group I didn't know, a pretty big group, by the way, that I didn't know, and it blew the minds of my friends because I was always the kid in the back of the room. And it was then that God transformed this shy high school wallflower into the one who somehow constantly has the mic. And I love it, by the way. God transformed me. And it took time. But during six years of training and two degrees at Biola and Talbot, I met my wife. I worked for free and then part-time with youth for two churches. And then in the summer of 1998, we moved back to the Central Coast to intern for Grace San Luis Obispo, in part because I felt like working at a very small church in the L.A. area, I was getting turned down for jobs, and in part because one of my mentors asked me to come up for the summer and intern for him, Ken Pete, it's at Grace Slope. We had anticipated that we would go back to L.A. at the end of the summer, and we had hoped that we would not go back to L.A. at the end of the summer, even though I love Los Angeles and still do. If you've heard me talk about Santa Maria, one of the things I love is it's a beautiful blend of Los Angeles and the Central Coast, and I think it's about the perfectest city in the world. But in the middle of 1998, as we searched we had this amazing moment where Nathan was being born but wasn't there yet, and we were looking for a youth pastor position but anticipated going back to Tiffany's second grade, if I remember right, job where she worked at my elementary school growing up with my second grade teacher growing up. That was trippy. And that July, I got a call from Grace Baptist Santa Maria. It was a church we never sent a resume to, and we didn't know was looking for a youth pastor. If you want to add another crazy one, I won't say who, and I'm not even sure I remember. One of the people that I value, I think I know which one, but one of the people that I value actually cautioned us against Grace Baptist for a couple reasons. And yet we were convinced that God was bringing us here, and, he, and we were right. And I don't know that my mentor was necessarily wrong, because no church is perfect. But grace has been for us. It has its own neat story that summer, but skipping to the end of the summer, we traded a week's stay at the Santa Maria Inn for a week's stay at Sierra Vista Hospital in Slow, which I think has a new name now. Nathan was born on Tuesday. My first interview was Wednesday. Thursday, I had more interviews, and I spoke at the high school group that night, because youth group for high school and junior high used to be split, and high school was Thursdays. I believe it was called The Edge. That weekend was both an off day, one of the days, and a luau. I think the luau was Friday, and the off day was Saturday. And then Sunday, for those of you that know a candidating weekend or week, Sunday was packed. We had morning services and Sunday school. We had a lunch with another set of 
kind of soft interviews. It was probably more of a hangout than interviews, but there were definitely questions being asked. And then a Sunday evening meeting and vote. And somewhere during that week, multiple times if I remember right, but at least once, someone asked me if we planned on sticking around a while and if youth ministry was just a stepping stone job for me. Those of you who haven't been here for the journey, 24 years and counting later, I still have the best job. I said yes then. I meant it. I don't think any of us knew how much I meant it. And I love it. We love Grace more, we love Santa Maria more, and we love working with youth more. And COVID has affirmed that multiple times. I mentioned this before to some of you, but as I told the seniors at Orchid Academy as a kind of a career day speaker last year, I was invited to a class. I was there all day. Uh, One of my students on the track team got extra credit for inviting a speaker in. It wasn't like a single career day, but they would bring people in. I think it was on a Friday throughout the year to speak about their job. And so I got to speak about my job at a public school. And my job is telling people about Jesus. That's pretty cool. My answer in trying to figure out how to say that in a fun way was, I get to facilitate and participate in the collision of God and his word and teenagers. And I love that description of my job. Or to put another way, I get to tell teens that Jesus paid the price for sin and offers them redemption and reconciliation. I got to say both of those to every single senior on the campus that day. And by the way, God is doing some cool things at Orchid Academy. Be praying for them and for our teachers that are there, as well as the teachers throughout our community, including our homeschool parents. That may be a story you've heard before. I went through my recent sermons trying to make sure I haven't used that recently because it feels like I have. I couldn't find it. But as I said before, if I have, it's the story I could start every sermon with. It's my testimony. That's a longer version of it, but ask our students on a mission trip a couple years ago, and I can go for about an hour and a half. I won't today. But as I experienced in 1977 and ever since, and as many of you have experienced, Jesus transforms. Jesus changes lives. We celebrate that every single Sunday, and I hope many of you celebrate that every time you wake up. And here is another story of transformation, this time from Scripture. It's in Luke 17, 11 through 19. As you turn there, if you're not following on the screen instead of in your Bible or on your phone, as you turn there, I'd encourage you, share your own story of transformation with the people you hang out with today and this week. Look for an opportunity to tell them, whether they're Christians or not, how God has impacted your life. Luke 17, 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? 
And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. In case I forget later, Jesus is not bashing the foreigner. He's talking to the Israelites around him and his disciples. He's not belittling the Samaritan in front of him. But going to verse 11, it mentions between Samaria and Galilee. At most, by the way, most of you don't, don't know or aren't familiar with the, uh, the terrain and the, the country of Israel, at least in an experiential way. But for us, it's really simple, actually. At most, he's traveling from here to Santa Barbara. That's it. That's not a long distance. Granted, they're walking. They don't have cars. They certainly can't hop in a plane from the Santa Maria Airport to the Santa Barbara Airport, although I'm not sure you can either because we never seem to have any flights going. But it's not very far. 70 miles or less. And if you want a bigger picture of Israel, just as a kind of an FYI, Israel would fit on the central coast from Monterey to Camarillo, north to south, that's it. And from Cuyama to the Guadalupe Dunes going east to west. The biggest difference is that there's about four times our population in Israel, and by the way, half of that lives in the contested areas claimed by Palestine, Gaza Strip, and the West Bank. Half the population of Israel is packed in two tiny little areas. Well, they're not tiny, but small, as a country goes. It's not a very big place. It's sort of a concentrated version of California, and it has snow-covered mountains and beautiful beach cities, as well as orange groves and barren deserts. We even both have a well-known inland lifeless sea. They have the Dead Sea, and we always forget about it, but we have the Salton Sea. It's like you took California and you shrunk it down in those dimensions I mentioned between Monterey and Camarillo and placed it on the central coast. And, and you might know this, but Samaria at the time is like how Californians feel about Bakersfield, Fresno, or maybe Stockton, and don't hate me, that's actually from a poll that a website took about how Californians feel about the, the 10 hatest, most hated cities. Yes, Los Angeles and San Francisco landed at the top of the list, but I feel like that's because they hate each other. And the people in the middle hate, hate going to either one or love it. Like I said, I love Los Angeles. San Francisco is a fun place to visit sometimes. You might love it more than me, but I'm an L.A. kid. But it says, then, he's on the way to Jerusalem. It's between Samaria and Galilee, and he's on the way to Jerusalem. And this is where some people have some struggle, because Luke doesn't seem to know what he's talking about. That's not how you travel to Jerusalem. You're going like wonky in all the wrong directions and the, the wrong way, and it doesn't make sense. I think there's two things that answer that. One, my favorite commentary, New American Tom commentary, pointed this out. It's the third time that Luke points out he is on the way to Jerusalem. For Luke, then, probably, it's not so much a geographical or directional statement. Go and not to mention, how many times do people get this wrong? And going to up, up to L.A. No, you're not. You're going down to L.A. From, from Santa Maria, it's down. I'm going down to San, San Francisco. No, you're not. You're going up to San Francisco from here. It's north. We all have directional issues like that that we just accept. We know what you mean. You're not saying I'm going north or south then. You're just saying I'm going yonder. But for Luke, it's probably more of a theological statement. 
It's about where he's headed, which is the cross. When he's heading to Jerusalem, he isn't just going to the capital city, and he isn't even just going to Passover, though that's true at times. He's going to redemption, our redemption. So throughout the book of Luke, which if you know the start of Luke, he says, I'm writing this that you would believe. And then throughout the, the book of Luke, we see it in 951, we see it in 1322, and then we see it in 1711, that he's heading towards the cross. On top of that, maybe Jesus is creating a Christological moment. Because the next thing that he says is profoundly vague. Verse 12, a village. Not the village, not a specified village, just a village. Could have been any village in Samaria. We don't really know where or which. It isn't designated and it doesn't matter. The Gospels make it clear that this happened all the time, by the way, but Luke wanted to record this moment. John says, there's so many more things that we could have written about that Jesus did. And Luke says, it doesn't matter which village, but I want you to know this thing that Jesus did. And perhaps even more, Jesus went out of his way to this village for this very moment. And yet it isn't about the village, it's about Jesus and a leper and faith and a close encounter of the transformational kind. Verse 10, I'm sorry, verse, still verse 12. There are 10, there we go, lepers who stood at a distance. There are 10 outcasts. The whole region of Samaria, by the way, is an outcast. Back to the nation of Israel, you kind of have four parts of Israel. You have the most southern part, the southern quarter, that's the desert, Dead Sea and, and the desert. And there's, there actually is some pretty cool stuff that happens there, but you don't want to live there. You don't want to visit there very often unless you're going to the Dead Sea or some of the cool parts around there. But that bottom part of what they call the knife, um, the knife blade itself, there's not a lot that happens there that, that people are heading down to there regularly, especially not past the Dead Sea. There's some things, but not a lot. You have up north, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee and above it. You have Jerusalem. It's a major quarter of the, of the country. And then the other quarter is kind of Samaria. And nobody wanted to be there. But Jesus goes there. Again, to an unnamed village. But Jesus goes there. He goes to the outcasts. And then in the area of outcasts, there are ten lepers, double outcasts especially the Samaritan one. Ten outcasts. One's a Samaritan, so to a Jew, he was the outcast of outcasts. They weren't going to hang out with the lepers anyways, but they definitely wouldn't hang out with him. And yet Jesus seems to go out of his way to find this one. You're seeing the parable of the one lost sheep in action. Jesus is going the wrong direction. Luke doesn't know what direction is, is the right direction geographically, and I think the answer is Luke knows exactly what's going on, and Jesus doesn't care about maps at this point. He cares about his child, a leper, who's about to be transformed. Who are our outcasts? 
That's not necessarily a challenge from this, but it is an important thing to think about. Is it addicts or the homeless or illegal immigrants and undocumented workers? Is it LGBT? Is it the other political party, whichever that means in your case? Progressive Christians or conservative Christians? Again, whichever you struggle with. Are you actually one of the poll takers above and you absolutely can't stand people from Bakersfield and the Central Valley? Not just that you make a joke about it, but you really don't like it when they come to our beaches? I hope it's nobody. I hope you don't have an outcast. But we are all sinners. And I'm sure there's somebody, if not a group, then as people and sinful people, there's certainly some individuals when you see them you hope you can find a reason to go the other direction. Shame on us, and yet, that's not an uncommon experience for any one of us. As in this passage, the Bible constantly highlights the outcast and calls us to them as ambassadors of reconciliation, not from them as a separatist community that's withdrawn. We are never meant to go the Amish route on this planet. We are never meant to pull away from this world, even though we are called to live differently from this world. And while we're at it, how has this become a progressive question and discussion? It's extremely biblical. It's not primarily progressive to think about the outcast. In your political conversations and theological con conversations, do not get sucked into that trap to think that addressing and being an ambassador to any one of those groups I mentioned above or any of the others that I left out is somehow less than biblical. That's exactly what we see Jesus doing here. He's going to the lepers, and in particular, he's going to the lepers in Samaria. And by the way, only one of them is Samaritan. So that means that nine non-Samaritan lepers found it a better place to live or the only place they could live than the rest of the nation of Israel, which is where they were from. How do we let this become a discussion for others and not for faithful Christians? And I don't think we actually have. But I think the way we talk sometimes indicates that we kind of have. More importantly, why aren't we the answer? Well, we are, actually. This is the encouragement. And Central Coast Rescue Mission is just one of the examples of that. One of the many examples of that. Don't buy the media's line that we aren't the answer. We are actively the answer. Go find out the amazing thing that Christians and churches are doing and do not accept our cultural mantra that Christians aren't doing anything. Don't take on guilt that you don't need to take. If you are guilty, take it to Jesus. But we are. Central Coast Rescue Mission, if you pull up that QR, is looking for helpers for the holiday. We already mentioned the barrels as well. And there's a graduation here at Grace on Thursday. Get involved with Central Coast Rescue Mission and CareNet and the other care ministries that are here in town. But also, why have we let politicians claim to be the answer? They're horrible at it. All of them. 
And yet, even if we haven't accepted that philosophically, we all too often linguistically and passively have accepted that that's just the way. But we know the answer. He transforms. Every room you are ever in and every discussion you are ever in, you have the answer for every problem in that room in Jesus. Take comfort in that and be proactive in that. We know the answer. Verse 13, they lifted up their voices, Jesus, Master, Mercy. That's abbreviated paraphrase. Is he? Yes. Yes, he is. Claimed and embraced or rejected and denied, he is. That's why he's the answer to every question. He is master, but was he to them? Clearly not, except for one. In verse 17, Jesus asked, where are the nine? Nine encountered Christ and literally walked away. They had called out master, but they did not follow him as master. But they cried out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. 14, the first part, he tells them what to do. Go and show yourselves to the priests. This is the law. If and when healed, they needed to, in their country, be declared as such by the priest to reenter society as restored. They couldn't just walk back home and be welcomed. They had to be certified by a priest. You are now cleansed. That goes all the way back to the law. And as pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus came to uphold and fulfill the law, not to undermine, reject it, or abolish it. Wonderfully, he fulfilled it so that we don't have to. But he tells them to obey the law. And they had to take a step of obedience, theoretically a step of faith, although we're going to find out for nine of them it was not. Did you notice, though, he doesn't actually do anything in this miracle. He doesn't even speak it. He doesn't do a thing. My God does miracles. He speaks the world into existence. He puts mud and spit in the eyes of a blind man to heal them. He only does that once, once, by the way, and then other times he did other things. He walks on water and he multiplies loaves and fish. He also simply wills physical healing for these lepers. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Go to the priests. Do you understand how intimidating that would be? He didn't tell them they were healed. He just tells them what to do. It's implied that they'll be healed by the time they get there. But what about when he doesn't heal? He didn't heal Job until the end. He never removed Paul's thorn in the flesh. And we all know loved ones who prayed for healing but were not healed. At least not from an earthly perspective. My God heals and my God saves our God. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego declared, even if he does not, my God still reigns and is still loving and I will still follow him. For as Peter says, where else and to whom else are we going to turn? He is still God whether healing or not. It hurts more and is harder if he does not but he is unshakably almighty God. 
But when these ten left Jesus, they were still leprous as they took their first step toward the priests. That's mind-blowing if you pause long enough to not have heard it a billion times in Sunday school. Go to the priests. Well, what good is that going to do? You didn't heal us yet. Go to the priests. He only tells them one time, and they walk away. And we don't know what all of them did. And that's an interesting point of discussion that people have. But they turn and they walk away, and he is not verbally healed them at least, but he did tell them they were healed when he tells them to go to the priest. 14b, as they were cleansed, they had to take a step or a few steps or maybe even all the steps before they were healed, probably many and not all. It's a kind of Schrodinger's cat, if you know that philosophical point. Or if you've seen this meme, Schrodinger's plates. Those plates are not yet broken. But they are. That's Schrodinger's dilemma point. If they were stacked, they would not be broken. If they were on the floor, right, well, the second after you open that door, they are all broken. If they're your favorite china, you're crying at this point. Because there's no way out of that. You're going to try to find a way. You might find a way, but you probably won't find a way. There's going to be a great deal of cleanup involved in that dilemma. This is a real-life miracle moment that is a Schrodinger's moment. Jesus has declared they're healed, but when they turn, it isn't realized yet, but it is secured The healing happens along the way for these group of men. There was a moment when they were healed by the will of Jesus and it was done and could not be changed, arguably, even though they were not yet healed until somewhere along the way. Some debate whether the other nine were healed or remained healed or if it kind of faded away depending on what they did. We don't totally know. They might make some valid arguments, but I I feel like, I feel like it's pretty clear in the passage that they were healed. That would mean that they were physically healed along the way and that the nine likely met with priests that declared them to be so and then went on to live healthy lives restored to their community. They were transformed by Jesus physically, but only physically. Verse 15, but one of them walking away, still leprous when he had turned, discovers, looks down, Maybe he felt it first, we don't know, that he is no longer leprous. And as he's heading to the priest, he turns back. I assume he went to the priest at some point, because again, he'd have to to be fully restored in his community. But he has something more important than seeing the priest at this moment. He wants to go back to his master. And he turns, and he returns to Jesus. He praises God. He thanks Jesus. And he's commended by Jesus for his faith. He's transformed not just physically, but spiritually. He's redeemed. He has a testimony. The other nine, unless they come to Christ later, they have a story of an encounter with the amazing miracle maker. This man has a testimony of how God transformed him. And it's going to start 
probably forever, but that he was a leper. But the transformation is what happened spiritually and not physically. Verse 17, though, calling out to those around him, didn't I heal ten? Where are the other nine? Where are the nine not Samaritan outcasts? They're now restored. They're the nation of Israel. They ought to be at the feet of the Messiah. Nine healed people encountered Christ. They were transformed physically, but they walked away, and most likely that was it, at least until later. Maybe after the cross, they realize what's going on. That happened with many, for sure. But it should wake us up to the reality that we can encounter Christ and not really be impacted by him. Not in the way that matters most. We can claim Christ even and never actually know him. We can certainly go to church and even serve and not be redeemed. Tragically, this happens all the time. Now before you panic, go read 1 John. It will give you confidence about your faith. But you do need to pay attention to, do you actually know him? Have you been transformed by him? Not just a temporary change here or there. Not just a healing or a couple years in church and helping out. Not just growing up as a church kid, but actually redeemed. Again, I don't mean to make you doubt. We can have certainty. But also, like the nine, there might be many people that had a cool moment or even moments with Jesus, but aren't actually saved by him. And don't really know him as master, even if they shouted it out one time at camp or at a Christian concert. You might have been at one of those before when they start shouting together, we love Jesus, yes we do. We love Jesus, how about you? And even though I'm a youth pastor, I have always hated that, by the way. You can love it all you want. My shy side comes out then. I'm like, nope, not joining you. Love Jesus, I'm going to do it quietly here. You all have fun being annoying. But if you love it, you're not annoying. I would never assume that about you. Uh, I'm thinking it if I'm in the crowd, though. Uh, have you been transformed? Scripture is clear that we can have confidence. But we need to ask the question sometimes. And if you're in the room and you answered no, take comfort. Here's a quick Version of the gospel, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no question mark at the end of that. Confess and believe that Jesus is our Savior and you are saved. But if you want confidence in that, Romans 12, 1 and 2 living sacrifices. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, and be transformed. It's verse two, be transformed, or do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans one through 11, I try to make a big deal out of this. It's the gospel in an expanded form. Romans 10, 9, and 10 is the short version. But Paul says, here's the gospel. We're all sinners. Jesus paid the price for sinners. Confess and believe, and you are saved. Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
Romans 12 is the turn, 12 through 15. Because you are no longer condemned, because you are saved, because you have confessed and you believe, live transformed. Sanctification. Salvation and then sanctification. Be transformed. Jesus transforms. He always transforms. That doesn't mean we are perfectly transformed all the time. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. We do. Paul talks about that too. Not just in Romans. But live transformed. Because Jesus changes us. Kind of wrapping everything up today. I didn't even really touch on it. But as we turn from Halloween, or more importantly, 95 Thesis Day, to Thanksgiving in two days, this one leper comes back to give thanks. Give thanks this whole month. Give thanks like our community and our culture will, but especially give thanks to and praise Jesus for how he's changed you and transformed you. That doesn't mean we think we're better than anybody else. It's just that I can look at my life and see how Jesus has made me better than me because he changes me. And if left on my own, I wouldn't be what Jesus has made me to be. So be thankful. On your way out today, go to the thankful tree in the hallway and write something down. And if you forget today, do it next week or all month. Fill the thankful tree and then pause and take a look at what grace is thankful for. But above all, it should be this, that Jesus transforms. Jesus heals. Jesus does miracles. Jesus saves. He transformed my life and my family. He transforms people every day. 2 Corinthians, new creation. God transforms so consistently that the stats and studies continuously bear this out. As weird as us Christians are, people should follow Christ just because of the, how the stats and the studies show he transforms life. If you're not fully convinced of Jesus, just pay attention to the science. It constantly points us to Jesus, even though it doesn't do that with that verbiage. Or verbiage, however you say that word. If you look at the studies, Christians constantly are at the top of those studies. Even the ones that are most challenged. If you look at the collective set of studies, you might get one that pops different for a while. My favorite one is this. Kids that are in youth group do better in school. That gets shown time and time and time and time again. And I can't remember if it's the Stanford or the Harvard study that showed that most recently that I bumped into. It's a couple years old now. But think about it. That was Stanford and Harvard. These are not bastions of Christianity. They're just top schools. Then they did studies and they found out, oh, look, kids that are involved in church do better. Get your kids in Sunday school. Their GPA will bounce up. Over time, I cannot promise that one Tuesday night will increase their GPA. Okay. Now, there's a study where the kids that are volunteering at Sierra Vista, well, hospitals, or at, at sorry, Marion, Sierra Vista is the one in Sloan my, my son was born at, at Marion, Beat the youth group kids out by one spot. They took first place. We bumped down to second. And then another study came out. We were back in first. Easy answer. Get them to youth group and then take them to volunteer at the hospital. Do both. But don't not get them in youth group. There's a lot of reasons. 
Kids are struggling. I have mentioned this before. Kids are struggling with mental health. Guess what? Kids that are in church do better in mental health. Your son, by the way, needs to be in our Tuesday night small group. They are struggling to connect, and it is impacting their lives, not just spiritually, but especially spiritually. Your son, who doesn't want to go to youth group, needs to be there at 8 o'clock. We start at 7, by the way, but 8 o'clock is about when we shift over to small group. They need five non-relative people who know their name at church to have what's called sticky faith by the author that came out with that. I think it was Kara Powell, but forgive me if I got the wrong author. Jesus transforms, and the stats bear it out. It's not the best reason to follow Christ, and it isn't a saving reason, but Pascal's wager says it's the only winning option in life. It's the only one that makes any sense, even if you don't believe it, because it's the only winning and no losing scenario. Every other scenario loses or is neutral. If God exists and you follow him, you're saved. It's that simple. If God doesn't exist and you follow him, you lost nothing. If God does exist and you don't follow him, you lost everything. Pascal's wager. I left one of the quadrants out, but that's okay. Follow God because it makes the most logical sense. That won't save you, but the science comes back to it. The philosophy comes back to it. It's what makes most sense. But if you're paying attention to Jesus, guess what he does? He transforms. And then the last thing, do you believe? Then like the leper, praise him. Literally right now, we're going to go to a worship song, but praise him every day, all day, throughout the day. Don't just cry out, Master, and then be like the nine that walked away and never came back. Cry out, Master, and turn and thank him and praise him. Let's pray. Lord, mighty holy, we worship you. You are the God who transforms my story is just one of many in this building right now and many in this city and many throughout the world and many throughout history. Like this unnamed leper in an unnamed village that you went out of your way to go save. We are transformed by you because you are the mighty and amazing God who saves. We praise your name. Amen.